0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish history soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Gaber. Yehuda Gaber with Jewish history soundbites, and uh, this episode is dedicated by Yechiel and Chana Rifki Weinberger, Leili Nishmas Reb and Chaya Sara Brown. Reb Shlomo was a Talmud of the Shevet Seifer in the Pressburger Yeshiva, and his wife, Sara was a daughter of the noted philanthropist in Bal Chesed, Yaakov Elephant. Reb Shleim survived Auschwitz with many great Hasidim, and the Elephant family survived in its entirety and spent months hiding in the forest of the Banska Bestritsa uh, area of Slovakia. With a passion for keeping to the minhagem and teachings of the Chesam Seifer, they established a family of many dairis of B'nai Taira. Notably, the elephant family has taken a prominent role of leadership and chinuch, both in Eretz Yisrael and the United States. So, we're going to continue with this um, series that I'm very excited about, um, already from part one about the Chassam Seifer, Ramayisha Seifer, Ramayisha Schreiber, um, originally of Frankfurt, the Mainz in, uh, in Germany. And most noted for his long rabbinical career in Pressburg, today Bratislava in Slovakia, and his influence on in leadership um, in in uh, the areas of Hungary, uh, confronting the challenges of modernity, and the yeshiva that he established, and the incredible amount of writing which was later published uh, posthumously um, over the years till today. Still published and in many many areas, he's been very influential, and I already um, had one uh, episode about the Chassam Seifer a th- few months ago, which I'll put a link to in the into the, sh- the notes for this episode, um, and I hope to have many more. Chassam Seifer is almost like a bottomless pit, um, and um, in part one we mostly discussed brief overview and his family and his legacy through his family, generations of of, um, of Jewish leadership following his passing. And now I want to get back a little bit to he himself and uh, the leadership that he exhibited during um, the 19th century, which was a century of change, and especially he um, was one of the ones who's no- noted for confronting those challenges of modernity and standing for tradition. So... I definitely would like to continue this series and we're hoping to get more sponsorships for future episodes of Chassam Seifer. I'm going to discuss different aspects of his leadership and legacy and his yeshiva and and, uh, different stage periods of his life, his youth, his his early rabbinical positions. Uh, What was it like within the city of Pressburg? What was his yeshiva like? What was his world stage uh, position? What were his writings about? What were his students like? The diversity among his students, his legacy, which is always a big dispute, what exactly is his legacy. So there's going to be quite a few episodes, and you can be in touch with me regarding these sponsorships um, at Yehuda, at YehudaGabra.com. That's the email. Um, and you can send it to me if you'd like to have another episode about the Chassam Cipher. Here in part two, I want to go further into an overview and discuss some of the complexities of some, perhaps some of those cliché or famous things about the Chassam Cipher, such as his uh, famous saying, Khadash asr man that anything new is forbidden. What exactly did he mean by that? And I want to use... Um, a few a few aspects of that to clarify um, because very often we look at the Chesam Seifer as somewhat this black and white um, idea or personality or legacy when in reality there's lots of shades of gray and complexity and nuance there which is what I want to delve into by looking at the Chesam Seifer within his historical context. So I think this will be a good springboard for both um, the current episode and for some future ones as well, and I thought that this episode is especially apropos, as uh, initially when I was preparing it, I noticed that Chassam Seifer was born, it said, in the month of Tishrei, and then I took another look, and it seems that it was actually today. Today, the seventh day of Tishrei, is his birthday, so happy birthday, Chassam Seifer, and it's his 260th birthday. Um, I believe, 1762, 19, yeah, uh, yeah. so it would seem. Yeah, his 260th birthday, so it's very appropriate to continue his story today. Before I get back into the Chazam Sefer, I noticed in the news today um, the passing of Rabbi Yezer Kugel at the ripe old age of 99, a very, very special man, um, who was the uh, Rosh Hashiva of the Shvut Ami, Kirivishiva outreach for um, immigrants in Israel from the former Soviet Union. He actually established it in the 80s when it was still the Soviet Union. A very pioneering institution. He was, Rebel Yezer Kugel was born in Tel Aviv. He studied at the Lumji Yeshiva in, in Petach Tikva. Um, and he eventually was likely the first person to spearhead an outreach organization altogether in Israel when he Went out to the development towns in the early 60s. This is prior to the Six Day War, um, which is the accepted uh, commencement of the Kirov movement in Israel. So he did it before that. Um, and he um, founded the Moriah Torah Journal. He founded the Technology and Halacha Institute. A lot. He was a very, very uh, accomplished individual and all without fanfare, a very special man. He was most renowned for it. He and his son. Founded the Shvut Yeshiva for immigrants from the Soviet Union, and later the former Soviet Union, in the eighties. Like I said, I became familiar with it myself because one of my 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 rabbis is Rabbi Meishel Yashiv, may he live, live and Be Well, Rabbi Yashiv's son, who I'm very close with, and he for decades would hang out in the Shvut Yeshiva. So uh, you know, Rabbi Kogel Kugel, in fact, was his first cousin of the Eliyashas. Rabbi Yasha was his uncle. So I'd visit him there. So I met alumni of Shavu Tami and the way they talk, spoke about the place and about Rabbi Liyazer Kogel. Very special place. Um, and he was a visionary ahead of his time, and may his memory be a blessing. So that's just a short tribute. So now let's get back to the chasm Cypher. Um like I said, I think in part one, the list of sources that there is for some sayfer is almost unmatched uh, about anyone else in recent uh, Jewish history. Um, there's been an enormous amount of material written about him of all sorts and all languages um, and biographies and historical works, scholarly works and enormous amount I, I obviously haven't read close to close to half, close to a quarter, close to anything of, of what is out there. Um, so there's definitely more to read. I specifically, I think I mentioned this in By the Night of Yehudah and by other episodes, I happen to have an affinity for the works, the scholarly works of Maoz Kahana, which I believe is only available in Hebrew, although I may be mistaken. Um, there's, but, so I use his as my main source, I, his book, I uh, and also his article in Um And and there's other books as well that I I use, and, and there's definitely much more out there. There's also many podcasts and lectures. There's a whole long series. of uh, Professor Mark Shapiro has about the Sam and others. So there's an enormous amount of material out there, and people who are curious about him should definitely uh, pursue it further. So what I'm going to focus uh, on... In this series, his biography, his life itself, his leadership, and I got a feel for the times. Um, so the, the, uh, the, we go to his gravesite in, his, his in Bratislava today, um, and there's a surge in popularity in increasing visits to his, to his caver. And the reason is, is because it used to be that people who went to his caver because of its proximity to Vienna. So it was simply convenient to go if you flew to Vienna, so it's a half hour away. But now there's another reason. The increase of traffic is due to the fact that it works out there on an itinerary to go from the Chassam Seifer to Rav of Karastir in Hungary. It's like a good maslul. it's a good route to go. So it's very convenient to start by the Chassam and end by Rav It's kind of an Oberland to Unterland Hungarian journey. And if we would delve more into the symbolism of such a journey of going from the Chassam Sofer to Rabb and what that means in the sociological context of today—that would be a fascinating study in itself. But I'm not going to get into that. Um, so he encompasses so much. There's also another thing about his literary output, which really deserves its own his own its own story. There's he 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 was a prolific writer. He also wrote beautifully. And he was an innovative thinker. Um, and he wrote on the full gamut of Torah literature. He wrote Halacha. He was a you know, tremendous paisik. He wrote many volumes of Tshubat Chasam Sefer. But he also wrote on Shulchan himself. itself. He wrote on Chumash. He wrote on Drashis. He wrote on Shas. He wrote on, on many, many more. And quite, quite a few. until today, they keep on publishing. In fact, he didn't publish anything in his own lifetime. Everything was published following his passing. Um, so there's various angles which are covered by it as his customs. They, they publish books of his customs as well. And and I think that there's a very compelling story uh, that I can mention. It just happened with me a couple of weeks ago, um, which introduces the complexity of the topic and how his legacy is very misunderstood and, and maybe even misappropriated and, and uh, you know, people. Everyone. Everyone has an agenda, and everyone tries to use it. But the chassam has become essentially a symbol for so much in today's contemporary uh, traditional society. So I was uh, with uh, by a by a neighbor in my neighborhood. Um, friends, we were Friday night dinner a few weeks ago. We're two two families together, enjoying ourselves and good food. So it is, you know, Hungarian atmosphere. And one of the topics of conversation that came up was the topic, it's a hot topic in Israel, and I don't want to get into it, it's the wrong platform for that, about general studies, uh, should they be introduced into the elementary schools um, or not, and I'm definitely not going to get into it or state an opinion on it, it's not the platform for it, and if you want to hear more about it, you could have joined that Shabbos Suda or just come to me for a Friday night dinner when, you know, recorders are off and it's a... Uh, and it's a, more of that atmosphere that we can you know, talk about that easily. But either way, he raises the topic, this neighbor of mine, and he interjects with it. He says, you know, anytime we talk about general studies being introduced into the chadarim, into the, uh, to the holy chadarim, so what I think of is the chsamseifer and his, his uh, combating the neolog influence in Hungary the secularist influence, or the non-traditional or non-Orthodox uh, influences on traditional Jewish life, and how the Chesam Seifer was a fierce combatant against these trends, and and therefore I see the historical parallel uh, when it comes to talking about introducing general stu- studies into the cheder. So I, like, you know, dropped my fork and whatever I was eating, and I said, you know, what you just said was historically completely irrelevant. He wanted to throw me out of his house. And the reason is obvious. First of all, the Neologs were not a movement in the Sam Seyfer's lifetime. Um, he's probably meant the Chesam students who combated the Neologs, which is definitely true. Chesam Seyfer, his fight was, his confrontation uh, was uh, against pre-Neologs. It, uh, it was reformist elements. It was the... Uh, Different, different threats to traditional Jewish life, which we'll get into, obviously, as we go along. Um, but it definitely wasn't, wasn't against the Neolog movement because it didn't really exist in the Chassam Seyfer's lifetime. It was more the his students who went ahead with that. That's number one. But well, that's a basic historical error. That's not, not, no reason for me to get excited. But what I got excited about was, the in, in a more fundamental sense, I said to him that these were non-traditionalist elements who were clearly declaring and stating openly that the Shulchan Aruch, the basic idea of observing Torah and mitzvahs as had been understood for centuries within the framework of halacha and the Shulchan Aruch as had been understood by traditional Jewish society, was, was no longer... To be the barometer, no longer to be the arbiter of Jewish law, no longer to be the final say. In other words, they were, they were. It was more of a fundamental thing, right? They're coming along to say that we 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 need a a structural change about how we view Jewish law, about that it doesn't have to be the Shulchan Aruch; it could be something else. And therefore, we can have a certain flexibility within halacha. We can change things much more drastically. And even if things were not changed drastically initially, because it was a very gradual process, but the idea, the kernel, was already laid right in the beginning, that the Shulchan Aruch is not the basis of Jewish law anymore. And then and then later on, three, 30 years later, at the 1868 conference, actually said so, uh, explicitly, um, and uh, it was voted down. It was actually a, a formal vote that the Shulchan Aruch is no longer to be seen as the final arbiter of Jewish law. So how can that even be compared to a you know a, a rather a different discussion? On, you know whether you are pro or anti is irrelevant uh, of general studies in a It has nothing to do with whether the Shulchan Aruch is going to be the the uh, the uh, the rule of traditional Jewish society has to do with whether you're going to add uh, general studies. As it happens, just for the historical record, the Seifer was not fundamentally against general studies. He happened to uh, allow it in the school that he supervised in Pressburg himself. Um, so, so which we'll get to also in the 1820s. Um, a school like that was opened and it had general studies and he supervised and he was totally okay with it. He himself studied it in Mainz in his youth. He hired private tutors for his own children to have it as well. So the the idea of, of general studies definitely wasn't foreign to the Xam um, Saifur, the sciences, languages, stuff like that. So but that's not my point. I'm not trying to push an agenda here at all. I'm just trying to fix the historical record. So um, what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to get to is that he became a symbol. It was easy for someone to go ahead and say, and I'm not, not, I have no issue with him saying it, um, that, that, that the Chesam Seifer is this symbol, the symbol of anything new, any changes. The Chesam Seyfer is the clarion, call, is the one who we invoke as, no, this is what the Chesam Seyfer warned about. This is what he fought against. We have to continue his legacy. And I think symbols are important. Uh, I think that's important to use the Khsam Sefer as. A, I think they have a lot of meaning, and it's a, a good connection to have. And what I'm, you know, what what I'm, what's a, the curiosity here in a historical sense is how did that come to be? What were the specific circumstances that evolved that he evolved into this crusader for tradition? This crusader for orthodoxy, this crusader for anti-modernity. How has that been interpreted by various communities over the years until he became and emerged as the ultimate symbol? And that's what I would like to explore, not only in this episode today, but in the entire series on the Chassam Cipher. And we can start with the slogan that's uh, most associated with him. Um, it's not just attributed with him, attributed to him because he actually said it. It's, it's, it's most associated with him is Chadash asr Min Hatayra. Anything new, any novelty, is forbidden. Forbidden Min Hatayra. Right, the Torah forbids it itself. It's not some sort of uh, rabbinical legislation. It's this is the Torah itself. Anything that's new. So first of all, how did it come about? I want to examine it in context. It. We know exactly when it came about. It was Friday afternoon on the eighteenth day of the month of Sivan in eighteen nineteen, that that's when he formulated it. So so he explicitly writes in this tshuva, in this halachic response that he's writing. That he formulates it there, um, and he um, he uses it quite often afterwards. A few years later, he writes in another letter that that this has become a. uh, He he loves this saying that he made up, that he uh, uh, formulated, um, and he uses it often. He calls it margala b'pume. I'm very used to saying this. This is a common expression of mine. And what was that initial context that he used it? He had a student of his, and many of his rabbinical response, mezalachic response, and Chubis Chassam Sefer is from students of his. One of the great accomplishments of the Chassam Sofer was his yeshiva, which was the largest and most impressive yeshiva in all of the area of Central Europe and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and those areas. Um, eventually, hundreds of students, more, grew even larger by his son, the Ksav Soifer, um, but he built up, he was this architect of the yeshiva, and the style of, of learning is he, he encouraged his students to enter the rabbinate, to get smicha, to get the rabbinical ordination, and to enter the rabbinate. So pretty soon there was tens and later hundreds of communities across the Austro-Hungarian Empire who um, who the rabbi, the rabbinical leadership, was students of the Chesam Sefer, or later on of the Pressburg Legacy, of the Ksav Sefer, the Shevet Sefer, and this was like this empire that he created, and he already realized these um, these in, these these impressive results in his own lifetime, and that is testified by the Chuvis Chasam sefer, where a nice chunk, like a quarter or a third of the Chuvas, especially from the later years are between him and students of his who were rabbis in many different towns and cities across the empire. So he, he, he sees the fruits of his labor. He sees the the positive results of, of his own efforts to teach and inculcate those students and send them out into the trenches. And this particular uh, tshuva was written to a student of his. This student had witnessed a local custom, whatever it was, which... Maintained a lenient position in the halachic area, and this student formulated a more stringent position from the text of the halacha, and he wanted the support of his his rebbe, his teacher, to to back him up in going against the local custom, which was to be lenient, to be mekel, and to support his his chumrah that he. Came up with that he established that he that he uh, f- you know came up with himself that would um, this chumrah the stringency against the local custom which was to be mekel, and the chasam disagrees with his student. He says, "No, don't be Mahmer. don't Don't be uh, don't 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 be more stringent. The local custom is important even in, in, to be mekel, and 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 the local custom is an old tradition." It's, Gone on for centuries, and one of the one of the things he comes up with later on in this long tshuva is chadash asher Your stringency, your chumra, is chadash. It's new, and we have to go against things that are new. So it's a what's astounding about this is that the founding moment of this chadash asher is not against reform. It's not against. Um, anything that's destroying tradition from an external source is actually from his own student, who's trying to come up with a chumrah in Allah against the local custom, which is to be mekel. And therefore, to he, he's, he defends the local custom, the kula, the, the leniency. And he says, chadash and atayr, don't bring in your chumrah, which is amazing. That's, that's the source for it. And he uses it in quite a few other contexts as well, and then it gets a life of its own um, to to e, e, uh, uh, um, the, um, e, uh, the 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 um, the idea how how it becomes spread. Now, when Chassam Sefer uses it is it could be could be substituted with the old uh, Ashkenazic adish. Min Hag Torah, uh, any any custom that the Jewish people use, which is a very Ashkenazi idea, an ancient Ashkenazi idea from medieval times, that it's a it's it's binding, it's as if the Torah itself said it, and uh, which the, the Chassam Sofer was very involved with upgrading as well of. of, 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 of of upgrading custom and the importance of custom and not changing custom. That's another part of the legacy of the Chsam and how he used it to confront modernity. But the primary innovation of the Chsam Seifer was to use this idea of either whatever you want to call it, Minig or Chadash Asr Minat whatever, whatever uh, expression you prefer until the Chesam Sefer, it was used as a halachic mechanism within the rabbinic world of Psak, which was common for centuries. Chesam Sefer goes ahead and his innovation is to extend its use as a defense mechanism and almost like a weapon confronting the challenges of modernity, confronting the onslaught against tradition. He brought it to its contemporary use, which is utilizing it as a tool in the face of this onslaught, in the face of this threat. Um, uh, perceived or real, the the, the uh, against tradition, against um, the halachic observance that he saw and understood as the correct way, which is very interesting. And it's, what's even more interesting is because you'll notice that I used the word that he innovated, that it's a novelty, it's it's a, a new idea to use the expression of Chadash Mis Asr and, and he himself says that he made it up. It was a novelty to use. Well. If if it's a novelty, that means it's new. And if it's new, then it can't be used, because chadash asr m'natayra. So how did the Chazam Seifer formulate the new expression of chadash asr m'natayra? If if no one before the Chazam Seifer had thought of it, that means the Chazam Seifer was the first one to do it. If he was the first one to do it, then it's new. And you see where I'm getting with this circular logic. And obviously, it's a rhetorical question, but I'm trying to make a point. The point is is that the Chesam Seifer was very aware that he was formulating a new expression. And, uh, and here we can come to an interesting distinction that Moskahana discusses, is that he, he calls it, a very cute way of referring to it, he calls it Khadesh Asr, but Chidish Mutter. The Chesam Seifer was innovating, but he was always innovating. Right? He wrote Chidushim his whole life. He was innovating within Tyre. And the Chassam was incredibly creative. And, and, and he had this amazing mind. And, and he was a, um, a, a synthesis and, 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 uh, and creativity and innovation within Tyre, this internal expression. Nothing was boring around the Chhamsar Yiddishkeit was exciting. The Torah was exciting. There was always new. There was always something new. There was always Chidushim. And that's what he was using to revitalize Jewish tradition. That was exactly the point. Um, chadash Asr is because one has to be aware of the limitations, of the boundaries that need to be created, of what are what's outside of tradition and it could be uh, referring to a student of his who's trying to implement a new stringency against the custom. He, it could even be used to a certain extent in his opposition to the Hasidic movement in Hungary, which he was opposed. He was a misnagid, which would be very surprising because today most, most of the Hasidic world, especially from Hungary or Galicia, they look at, back at the Chassam Sefer as one of the greatest leaders uh, and, then they, and that they're continuing his legacy. Um, which is, you know, a, a, an interesting journey itself, the Oberland to Unterland journey. But in essence, the, in in his own context, Chazam Sefer comes from Hungary, he's a Yaki, he's a German uh, Jew, he's in Oberland, he definitely was Ashkenaz, not Hasidic at all himself, but even beyond that, he was a bit of an opponent to the Hasidic movement for the same thing, because... It was novelty; it was new. They're going against the custom of the community. They're praying in a different nusach. They're doing things that were, you know, kabbalistic things. And even though he came himself from Reb, the his his primary rebbe, Reb Nassim Adler, was ostracized by the by the Frankfurt community for innovation for doing kabbalistic formulas and stuff like that. And some Zifer sided with his teacher. He left Frankfurt in 1782 when he was 20 years old, never to return to his hometown. So he himself understood what a, a Hasidic type of innovation was, because Rav and Adler was almost like that. But at the end of the day, when the some is the establishment rabbi in Pressburg, and seeing the threats of modernity and confronting those challenges, he says, on the right, to the right of me, we have the Hasidic movement, which is innovating and that can be dangerous also but within the community. It's changing custom. It's new. It's different. And on to the left of me, we have the reformers. We have the Hamburg Temple. We have people like Aaron Khuren, who is a student of the Night of who is who had become a a a, a reformer who had, was a big, great one uh, of the great antagonists of the Chassam cipher So he 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 says, "Look, Chadash Asur Menatayr. We got to go keep with the established custom and the establishment. What's been until now." And the irony of the three decades of the Chassam cipher. Uh, the primary activity from, you know, he was the rabbi in Preschburg. He, he had smaller rabbinical positions earlier. He was the rabbi in Matastar for nearly uh, eight, nine years. He was the rabbi in in, uh, in in Dresden. It's a smaller town. He had a yeshiva in each of those places as well. He was a teacher and earlier in Preschnitz and in other places. He, he had spent time in Vienna with uh, with uh, his rabbi Reb Adler when they were in exile. He even was a visit in Prague. He met the elderly Noida Behuda, the previous great rabbi of the age. But in his main years of activity, the last thirty-three years of his life when he was in the Pressburg community, so one of the ironies of those thirty some odd years was that he was leading the charge during a very unique time period where rabbinic modernity, rabbis who were who were rabbis who were innovating, who were changing tradition, who were who were Implementing certain early changes using the rabbinic halachic process. In other words, they were writing tshuvas about how it's really permitted to do X, Y, and Z, and and we can change the structure of the synagogue, and we can change the structure of prayer, and we can make certain halachic changes. And they would and they would use the rabbinic halachic process to do so. And the Chassam Sofer's responses, which was Polemics to disprove them point by point, to restore the honor to the office of the rabbinate, to use all kinds of creative upgrades from the rabbinate to the Raysa and sanctifying custom and minig. Following the passing of the Chassam Sefer, the next generation of Central Europe, of Germany, of Hungary, those areas, that whole battlefield would become almost obsolete because when assimilation kicks in, once secularization kicks in, then this idea of rabbinic uh, um, or, you know uh, using the rabbinic process to implement the change that, that that inter-rabbinic polemics becomes a thing of the past and it becomes obsolete so the cipher was at a very unique period in history where he sets the tone for the traditional community which is why in many ways he's seen as the father of orthodoxy which orthodoxy is like a, it's essentially it's a modern movement. It's taking traditional Judaism, and and recasting it, and 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 and, and using it in many defense mechanisms, uh, confronting the challenges of modernity. And the Chassam Sefer is to a certain extent the father of that. One interesting example is is that he discusses uh, using milk from a non-Jew, which is a prohibited. So he says, if it's objectively prohibited, if it's a, there's an objective prohibition at, 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 at drinking milk milked by a non-Jew, then it's only a rabbinic prohibition. It's a light prohibition. But if it's objectively permitted, and the only reason to forbid it is because the custom of the Jewish community is to not partake in milk milked by a non-Jew, then all of a sudden it becomes a Torah prohibition. So if it's objectively permitted it's it's a isur dairaysa if it's objectively for, forbidden then it's only an de rabanan. That was the creativity of the Sam cypher. He talked very often in the last decade of his life about Sisro, about the idea that the Jewish community is is as a community without without their rabbis, without because he he saw rabbis in the last decade of his life which is in his writings, he's very pessimistic about the future because he sees the secularization. He sees the failure of the rabbinate. I mean, that's why he wanted his own students to become the rabbis because he felt that would fix it. He sees that the rabbis are leading the charge. The people like Aaron Churin and people like others, the ones who who made the Reform Temple in Hamburg, the, the main main fights of his his career. So he saw them as as part of the problems. He said, but the essence of the Jewish people. He says, if you can't even rely on the rabbi of your community, because he's the one making the changes, so ask your mother what she did. What was the custom? What was the custom in your home? Go into your home to your Shabbos table and ask your grandparents what the right thing is to do. Go back to the source. And that's and that's where his his whole idea revolving around custom came as well. So there's a lot more to say about it. There's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of context that's needed. And I've run out of time for this episode. I'm kind of leaving it hanging in the middle because I jumped right into the Chadesh Asram and Atayra um, idea. But uh, I think in the next installment, we'll take a step back and actually trace the life itself of the Chassam Sehver, go through his biography and especially his early years, his formative years, and how he ends up in Pressburg, and his relationship with the Pressburg community, which was filled with tension as well, and perhaps we'll explore that in the next couple of episodes. I'm looking forward to further installments of the Chazam Cipher series. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.